is No Commons, and I'm your host, Janice Geary. I'm talking to experts across diverse fields about how they think the infamous idea of the tragedy of the commons can help tackle big problems of how we govern shared resources. I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Michel Morin. Michel is a full professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Montreal. His training includes a master's in economics from the University of Quebec. His research and teaching interests have focused on comparative legal history of public or private law and the evolution of the rights of Indigenous peoples. In addition to his numerous academic papers, he has written two prize-winning books, one called The Usurpation of Aboriginal Sovereignty in 1998 and Courts and Arbitration in New France and Quebec from 1740 to 1784, published in 2012. And of course, his CV includes his 2018 paper, Indigenous Peoples, Political Economists, and the Tragedy of the Commons. So welcome, Michel. Uh, is there anything that you wanted to add to that introduction, or did I miss anything? No, I think it's very good, but I have to point out that I'm not a doctor. That's unusual, but in law school, you can, or at least when I was hired, you could have only a master's degree, and it's still the case for many law professors, and I would hope that it doesn't detract from the quality of the work that is done by all these numerous colleagues, who for all sorts of reasons, one of them being that normally you have a first degree before you go to law school, and then you go to the master's level. Well, I, I appreciate that reminder. And em embarrassingly, uh, I, I knew that. I knew that about law legal scholars. So I, I should have noted that from your CV. But thank you for that reminder. Um, so just to start off with, can you provide just a brief overview of what your paper was about? I assumed initially that Hardin was familiar with a paper by Demset about the origins of property rights, in which Demset, Harold Demset, which was an economist, and published this paper in 1967, said that familial territories, which were a form of property, developed uh, on the north shore of the St. Lawrence because of the fur trade. And prior to that, hunters and gatherers like the Inus, which used to be called the Montagnes, uh, these Inus and other hunters and gatherers had no form of boundaries or limits when they were hunting or fishing, for that matter. So I felt that Harding was using exactly the same kind of reasoning, which was demonstrably false from an historical perspective. And because there was a conference on the 50th anniversary of the publication of his paper, I thought it would be useful to look at it from the perspective of indigenous peoples and economists, because as you've mentioned, I was trained as an economist after studying law although I didn't really do much work after that on, on economists, so it was a way to return also to my long-lost interest for economists. So in any case, I, I looked at the archives and Hardin and how his thinking had evolved, and it was very clear that he became aware that you should distinguish between bounded commons, a specific location where you have a community where management rules can be enforced and you can avoid the tragedy of the commons. That came 10 years or so after first publication. And boundless commons, this is my expression, if you're thinking of the ocean, the atmosphere, where it's very hard, although of course there is ultimately some kind of limit, but for human beings, it's very hard to see it as a 
specific space where you can have a concerted action unless you have the unanimity of states agreeing on how to use the ocean or the atmosphere. We know how difficult that is. And that distinction, because it was lost, and because of stereotypes on indigenous people, I felt that it was worth pointing out that Hardin was very much, willingly or not, relatively willingly, but maybe not only consciously, uh, he was denigrating indigenous people. In your paper, you point out the language he uses that seems to really refer to indigenous peoples. You point out that he writes, arrangement of this kind could last for centuries with tribal wars, poaching, and disease, keeping the number of both man and beast well below the carrying capacity of the land. And you pointed out this is a clear indication that he's referring to indigenous peoples in his paper, to some extent at least. Yes, definitely. And what I take out of this sentence is that for him, there's no regulation, no form of law, custom if you prefer, no rules of management in these communities because there's no need for it, the population level being low compared to what he calls the thing carrying capacity of the land. Everyone can hunt everywhere and kill the beasts or fish and there's no need to wonder how many animals are killed or what measures should be in place to preserve the natural resources. And here, this is a stereotypical view that I was referencing. Right. And your paper, um, I believe in the third part of your paper, you go into great detail about the the rules and the laws that actually governed these resources in that, that earlier time in Quebec. Can you outline um, some of the, the laws and the, and the customs that were actually in place that um, showed how people were really managing those resources? What I think I was able to establish in previous publications, and I summarize here, is the existence of national territories. And nations could be relatively small by our standards. You could have a grouping of bands, maybe a few hundred people, but the boundaries between the nations, and they could have a similar language or belong to the same culture, and the boundaries between these various nations were very well established and clearly understood both by the indigenous communities and by the French colonizers who had to travel through them to offer gifts, for instance. Now, these boundaries could be fluid uh, when people were hunting, but if you are speaking of crossing the territory of one nation to reach the other for commercial purposes, then you may have to pay some, or to go through a form of toll and to offer some gifts and make some payment. So there was very much a notion of a bounded territory belonging to a nation, and within that nation, there were hunting bands who were using districts. And here again, the property was to the nation collectively, and the right to use or to hunt in one district could change over the years. And the boundaries between the hunting bands were much more porous because in the winter, many indigenous peoples were threatened with starvation. So the rule was you tried to stick to your district when you were hunting, but if you needed to go out of the district because there was absolutely no food to be found in your own district, no one would complain. The density of the population, here we can see some elements of Hardin being valid. The density of the population was low enough that you could move from the boundaries of one district to the other without 
is being noticed uh, by those who were allowed to hunt in the district in the first place. I'll just add a final word. In all of this, there were also well-known methods to ensure the preservation and the renewal of resources like not killing young animals or hunting in some districts every two years or every three years. So the idea that indigenous peoples had no knowledge of how to preserve resources is false, although it did not always work well because of epidemics and colonization. I'm glad you brought that up because that was going to be my next question. If you could um, summarize a little bit about what caused those really sophisticated governance structures to collapse. And you, um, you just touched on how it was really the effects of colonialism that broke down those mechanisms. But before I get you to talk about that, one thing that I, I haven't spent a lot of time discussing on the podcast is Hardin's views on population control and how he had really abhorrent views about who should be allowed to breed. And it's alluded to in the tragedy of the commons that he published in 1968. And he, you know, was much more explicit about it in later writings and in other less formal publications. But he was... Um, He's been really regarded as a white nationalist who did not think very highly of people who were not middle class white people like himself. And I, I think your description of the indigenous legal norms that were present before colonial times and how colonialism really disrupted those systems is such a powerful contradiction to Hardin's entire viewpoint beyond what he wrote in this paper. So with that's what I'm thinking about when I'm thinking about the impacts of colonialism on these these laws. So could you tell us a little bit about how colonialism kind of led to the um, the breakdown of, of those really successful governance approaches? Well, the, the main factor was indirect, and I've mentioned already epidemics, because the density of the population decreased enormously just because of commercial exchanges, not necessarily at least in Quebec on the North Shore because of wars or violent encounters that would have happened much more south of the Canadian border and maybe later in the West. But the epidemics were really devastating. So the territory was much less people. And then the boundaries were less visible to the French. That's one factor. And these weakened people and their social structures uh, thinking of the Inus, uh, which came to depend to a certain extent on some French merchandise to subsist during the winter. Well, the French would tell them, well, you need to be careful with the beavers. And they would say, well, when we're starving, uh, you know, we can't think of conservation. This is the answer that the indigenous peoples themselves gave to the French when they were saying, why don't you take measures not to overhunt beavers? and to exhaust the resource. And they say, well, because we're so poor and on the verge of dying, we have no other choice. And this illustrates very well, you know, all the damages, put it very mildly, all the destruction and havoc erected upon the indigenous peoples by colonization. And I know that, you know, some of this documentation of I should say Western documentation, I'm sure indigenous customary laws and the practices of disseminating knowledge to those communities was never disrupted. But as far as Western documentation goes, it probably the 
these customs and approaches weren't really present in the literature in 1968. But you you did describe a lot of evidence that contradicted Hardin at that time. Can you talk a little bit about the the evidence that would have been available to Hardin um, when he wrote this paper to to show him that the the views he's espousing aren't weren't even accurate in 1968? One thing that's been pointing out is that for fisheries, the issue that's being flagged out 1964 by an economist that I was not aware of. And for me, what was very surprising is even the prototypical example that he uses, the village commons where you have herdsmen sending cows or whatever animals or pasturing. In England, there were specific rules to avoid the tragedy of the commons that existed in law. And he actually discovered them later and did not brag about it. So it's very famous example of, you know, farmers or, yes, farmers putting more and more bees just to increase their own revenue and doing nothing while the commons are deteriorating, even disappearing at some point, the tragedy of the commons. Very famous example was completely contradicted by the literature that was not very well known at the time, I should say, but even by such a thinker as John Locke which is extraordinarily famous even in the 1960s. And he says, when we're speaking of a common in Europe, it belongs to a community and only those members of the community are allowed to use it, uh, to use it according to the laws enforced there. So I think these are examples where Hardin could have found, uh, if he had taken the pains to just be a little curious about how it really worked on the ground, he could have found these things that I found very, very easily. And for indigenous peoples, I will be more charitable in saying that it was also the case in anthropology that there was a very strong idea that indigenous peoples lived in a communist era with no form of uh, property, territories, control. That was very, very powerful line of thought defended by Elinor Leacock and Demsets use Leacock and although Hardin may not have been aware of this specific literature, it was very much the way indigenous peoples were thought of, you know, they're on the land and don't care about where they are, where they hunt. They just use the resources without any rules and without taking any kind of precaution. As an expert in indigenous law, when did that assumption really start to be challenged in literature? There's a paper I quote that was published in 1973 by someone who emphasized that if you look at the way of life of indigenous peoples, hunters and gatherers, and they cannot accumulate much property, the way they would use the land would be very much rational from an economic perspective. And I think following Cardin's paper, there were a lot of publications saying, listen, when we look at various communities which have commons, they have regulations, they have rules, whether fishermen or other kind of commons for pasturing or whatever. So in the 1970s, there was very much a reaction to Harvey's portrayal of commons as being the equivalent of the absence of rules. 
One thing that I really enjoyed about your paper that you, I don't see in a lot of papers, and if anyone's interested in really learning a lot about the literature of this time, I would highly recommend they read this paper. But one thing that, that Hardin does is he really seems to kind of bemoan and whine about the lack of evidence that other people are using to counter his arguments. And uh, he, he seems to whine that economists don't use enough evidence to develop theories. But as, as someone who's read so much of Hardin's work, are you aware of any evidence he actually produced? Did he ever produce any science to support anything that he wrote about that you're aware of? The issues that I looked at, like overpopulation and the commons, no, he would use constantly examples, but he would not try to quantify this. The most interesting reference I found was an unpublished paper where he found a number a kind of threshold, he said, under maybe 150 people or something, communal norms, moral norms, I should say, will be enough to allow a community to regulate the use of the commons. People know each other, and for him, this was outside of law and something that was not mandatory. Because, of course, for him, law comes from the government, the state, with judges, polices, things like that. So, in his view, and that was relatively current, even in the 1970s. Law does not exist in indigenous communities. Well, law, as conceived in the Western world, nowadays we realize that law is much more complex than how it is enforced. And adherence to law may mean that rules are really legal in a community. And these examples about staying in your own district, that was very much respected. It was by way of exception, that hunters would move out of their district when they needed to. The first the thinkers, the Western thinkers, saw the exception as a rule because you were allowed to step out of the district. And very soon it became you were allowed to go anywhere and there were no districts. And so they kind of reversed completely the situation. And so going back, I'm kind of moving in a different direction here, but going back to Hardin and his evidence, I think he was very good at using all sorts of arguments and examples, but not at producing scientific work. And if you look at where the papers were published, they were not in general, and the 1968 paper being the exception, I think in general they were not published in scientific reviews, per se. And they're much more about arguments on where we should go and the kind of problems that exist, they are very impressive. But this being said, I was just looking at what he wrote about free trade in very obscure reviews in the 1990s, a few years before his death, and captures very well all the social and environmental problems. Now, he doesn't use the commons at this point. He used an under underlying theme, which is that economic activity produces all kinds of social costs that are not born, sorry, are not supported by businesses. And he says that free trade is a good example of that businesses just move out where it's easier to produce at lower cost. And then the countries where they used to be are faced with unemployment and competition from countries which don't have rules that are strict on the environment and on protection of workers, etc. So here, 
many years later, he became a very good economist in my view. But all this time, not using very solid example, more commenting, drawing ideas, arguments, and counter arguments with a few examples. So less producing evidence, but, but I guess he became a little bit better at actually reading evidence in his later years. Well, evidence, if you're thinking about statistics or numbers or examples where you say this specific type of regulation works and this specific type does not work and this is a managed commons and this is an unmanaged commons and this approach in the ocean to managing the ocean, it was always very, very general without looking into the details of a regulatory scheme or international conventions or things like that. So in that sense, he didn't really provide evidence or analyze evidence. He was just looking at the broad ideas and the types of solutions that could or could not work using his own impression. My own training is in public health, and I have a master's and a PhD in public health. And I really got into commons literature as a way to understand how scientists manage resources that they use to support their work, like repositories and, and data sets. And I'm wondering, as someone trained in law and economics, where did you first come across this, this work? And uh, what was your, you know, your first experience with um, getting into this literature? Certainly when I read about law and economics, so I had not read Hardin's paper, but it's always quoted on the origins of property. When they say either you have a property regime or you have government regulation, otherwise you have the tragedy of the commons. Well, if you put a qualification that you can have managed commons, it still makes sense. As I think is obvious the issue, but uh, so the greenhouse gases are regulating the use of the ocean and uh, overfishing and things like that, where you have states. Well, the states really very much are into the tragedy of the common. So, so that insight is very valuable. I came from this with this general view that property is connected originally in the view of many economists or in the law and economics school with um, the tragedy of the commons. But I had not read the paper until I thought, well, my research on indigenous people, regulation of resources and control over the territory contradicts the basic assumptions of Hardin. So it would be nice to use this as a way to have a secular Hardin. So one thing that you pointed out in your paper that I hadn't come across before is a quote from Hardin in another one of his works after the 1968 paper where he complains about interdisciplinary scholars and how they should really just focus on the true nature of things and how they uh, the underlying nature of things is how he phrases it. As someone who is trained in multiple disciplines, what do you think are some of the strengths in approaching questions like uh, the tragedy of the commons from an interdisciplinary lens? What I just said about property being a way to manage resources, but it can be communal property or individual property or state regulation. This framework being applied to the environment, it was very valuable, you know, to let scientists become aware of this. And Hardin played a useful role in that perspective. And I think Hardin's paper is way more famous than Demsa which has a more technical argument. 
but I think all of these insights have been valuable and useful. They've allowed us to establish a more uh, sorry, an important distinction between, as I said, managed commons and unmanaged commons, but still they allowed us to think differently about the environment, which used probably to be thought of in the 1960s as a scientific issue, you know, controlling the amount of pollutants that will go in the atmosphere or the ocean, and not very much on the question on what are the basic rules in our society that allows to combat pollution more effectively. I think there's a lot to be said about interdisciplinary approach, and it is essential. But I must qualify this by saying that Hardin was not very good at was very good at catching the attention and having the formal shock, we say in French, you know, a few lines that would draw public attention and would stick into your mind. So he was very effective at that, but he didn't really do serious interdisciplinary work. As I mentioned, it was only after 10 years that he started to realize there were different models, and he started to look at what economics had been writing, and then he criticized them in a very interesting way. He had not thought about legal regimes. He was just saying the way herdsmen behave with the commons is the way we all behave with the herds and with population. And his main point was to say we must control population. And much later, he had to recognize, well, population always increases and there are new technological developments. And we have not really seen such a decrease in the Western world, I should say in the quality of life or the sustainability or even though there's pollution and there's increase in population, the tragedy is not occurring at the point I'm saying. So it shows that the way the interdisciplinary approach is disconnected with concerns about empirical evidence and measuring. We are actually experiencing the theoretical problem that writing, pulling together all sorts of quotation arguments for different thinkers. He published a book like that in 1965 without seriously looking into what these people were actually thinking or saying, just pulling out an excerpt. So I think the criticism of Arden was well deserved on that score. And I know that the listeners of my podcast tend to be, as far as I know, early career researchers and graduate students. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about your experience of moving through academia as a professor with this interdisciplinary training and also working in publishing in two languages and, and how that has been and kind of the some of the benefits and maybe some of the challenges for your own career. Well, the first thing I'll say is I love skipping from one subject to another that are completely unrelated. And occasionally you make a discovery in a very unexpected place. I'll just give an example. I was working on the origins of the Quebec Act, which recognized the civil law tradition coming from France and Quebec, but still being forced in Quebec. That was in 1774, so that's an issue about Quebec's legal history. And there's nothing specific in the Quebec Act about indigenous peoples, although it was part of the global picture at the time, but Reading the parliamentary debates, at the very end, I found a quotation from the governor of Quebec at the time saying that in 
his peoples were independent nations that were not, or that considered that were not subject to the laws of Great Britain or of Europe. That was very useful quotations for my research on indigenous people, which in general is not that very well connected. These two strands of research are relatively independent from one another. You know, I've moved from public law to private law to indigenous people's law with some incursions in the history of international law. So in other words, I'm all over the place, and that can be very bad for a scholar, especially if you publish in two languages. So I love doing it. That it's much safer, and I would highly recommend at the beginning of one's career to have a much narrower field. And I think in the natural sciences or empirical sciences, it's much more the case that people need to focus on very narrow subjects and to develop an expertise and not start some work and then start working on something different and run the risk of not publishing in any of these fields or on any of the two issues that you started to work at I have certainly experienced that as a postdoc looking at faculty positions. No one writes a job description that describes what I do. <laughs> Sometimes there are job descriptions that are broad enough that I feel like I can apply to them. But overall, my, my lack of focusing on any one specific discipline or one specific you know, bit of content to address has certainly been a challenge for me. Although I will say the other side of that is I've also had a lot of fun studying things and pulling in different lenses to answer research questions that are interesting to me. So uh, it, it can feel rewarding, but also frustrating when you can't find an academic job um, based on your skill set. So I, I feel that very much right now. The silver lining is that knowledge has progressed much more when people, and Hardin would be a good example of this, from outside the field, come and have a second look say something startling and completely different, which may not be completely defensible as in the case of Hardin, but starts everyone thinking. The other thing I will say, which is a little nasty, and it's not only for Hardin, all the great thinkers are the ones that can be used in many different ways, even contradictory ways. The ones that are perfectly clear and logical and have a very tightly knit system or scheme or whatever tend to be forgotten very quickly. So sometimes those ideas that come from out of left field tend to be the most memorable and the most impactful. You know, for my own my own interest, I'll I'll share a bias I have, and that's that because I work with really modern topics and governance of very modern data, modern resources like data um, and, and big data, I I tend to not go back to things that have happened a very long time ago. You know, I look at people applying Hardin's ideas from 68, and I think, why are these even relevant anymore? And you're, of course, a person who has studied law going back into the 1700s. And I see such, reading your work, I see such value in understanding those systems. So as someone who studies those systems, what would you say to a person like me who might tend to forget that there's a lot to learn from things that have happened in the past? I would have a cautious answer because I wouldn't want us to think that you can only find ready-made answers looking into the past. And historians that have tried to do that have, in general, been guilty of oversimplifying or twisting the evidence to 
achieve certain results. So you have to do history seriously and understand that constant with different values were different and really to try to see how, say, legal institutions serve certain purposes, work well or not, etc. And when you look at the evidence that I summarized in this paper, you see that for all sorts of reasons, although conservatory measures were known, they were not always resorted to, and in some areas, some species became extinct. And that would be true of the French people as of indigenous people. So the tools may be there, in other words, the knowledge may be there too, but it may not work out in the end. This being said, if we try to draw a simplistic lesson, I would say maybe the ones who are on the ground are in a much better position to make decisions and evaluate the resources, or at least maybe not a better position, that they have a unique knowledge about the resources of their own environment, and that would be true of indigenous people in these years and today. And just saying, well, this communal knowledge that may be influenced by spiritual notions in some cases, but varies very much from one nation to the other, and this special relationship to the lands that indigenous peoples have, and the very thorough knowledge that they have of the territory. And we've seen this, I think, in the north with the Inuits and some issues about fisheries. Well, using this traditional knowledge can allow us to devise measures that are much more effective than if you have only people sitting in a government office using all these scientific methods that are really well thought out and tried, but still that are imperfect in many ways, because you cannot always have a perfect knowledge of what's going on on the ground. On the other hand, the indigenous peoples will be the first to say that they don't want to ignore the benefits of science. They just don't want science to be seen as incompatible with their own knowledge and the way they will deal with the issues we've been discussing today. And before I get to wrapping up, um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, any discussion or feedback you've had from this paper. And I, I did do a little search, and it's been referenced three times. And my favorite of those was a 2019 paper called Disciplining Utopia, I think written by Jedediah Kronk. And he refers to the classic trope of the tragedy of the commons and cites your paper as a critique of, of that trope. A lot of discussions obviously happen outside of the literature. So I was wondering if you had any feedback on this paper. Well, not directly. I think your invitation was one of the feedback. And it may take some time, especially considering the enormous amount of publications on the tragedy of the commons and the fact that I'm just coming from the left field saying, hello, I have this to say, and going back to my interest on this edition in Quebec, it doesn't help in a, in a way. By this, I mean that Michel Morin is not a name that even myself would have associated with the tragedy of the commons before I wrote this paper. And at this point, I have no plans to go back to this issue. But if I have the occasion, I will gladly do it, but I will need to have something new to say about this. I will not kind of publicize my own paper by repeating it endlessly in conferences. You could criticize Hardin for repeating these ideas many, 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 many times with slight variations. And I 
try to do two different subjects into a different topic. So the upshot is I didn't really receive many comments or critiques about this. Those that were my friends were kind enough to say it was a very interesting paper, but that's about yeah, I think you're right that it often takes some time before uh, any publication gets traction in in the fields that it, it's written in. And I've I've done a few publication analyses of seminal papers, and it's it's generally years before even those papers end up with the the large number of citations that they get or stimulate a lot of conversations. So uh, yeah, I'll definitely watch to see how your paper gets integrated into the the broader commons literature. Before I get right to the end, I was just wondering if there's any other thoughts that you want to share about your paper or the tragedy of the commons in general. Well, I just wanted to follow up on what you said. And I think initially Hardin's paper for one or two years or three years did not have such a huge impact. And then it was, I don't remember the details, but I've read this. And I think one of the papers was published in Via Radical Inquiries in Law. Eventually it gathered steam. In the environmentalist movement, or those who are concerned with the environment. And maybe initially people said, oh, well, this is interesting about population growth, population control, but maybe the issue is not so clear. And only later did they came to realize this is very valuable as an insight on how we protect the environment. You know, I've started doing some analyses of Hardin's body of work. And uh, so I, at some point, I would like to have more to say about that, but I don't have a good uh, description of how kind of the trajectory of how that paper gained traction, although it's it was very slow. I've observed that um, much like what you're saying. Um, and I mean, one thing that uh, we, we didn't touch on was kind of his works that preceded this paper. And he was not an economist, he was a biologist. And from what I've read, he had a couple of microbiology papers that came out of his PhD. He had a couple of papers that were actually sort of funny. You can see his transition from trying to be a microbiologist to being a, a guy that just complains about things. And he had a few papers that were complaining about language in his field of microbial ecology. And then he wrote this paper. And then his his publications and um, this trajectory that we see now is really what started from there. So um, it's an area that I'd like to study more and learn more about because I just think it's really interesting, the story of how this paper gained the traction that it did. Um, and just to finish off, I'm wondering if you're working on anything now that uh, people might be interested in checking out. As I mentioned earlier, I moved from one very specific field to a completely different area. And that would be the case in point because my next paper, written in French, is about the transition from orality to published judgments, because the reasons for judgment in the common law tradition were read aloud and sometimes were written in advance, sometimes not. These were the initial case reports, and this occurred in Quebec too during the course of the 19th century. And the originals of these reasons for judgments that were read when they were written in advance are very hard to find if the decision was not published. So it's a fascinating transition because in the civil law tradition, the judgments are very brief and they're in the record and they're easy to find. And the common law tradition, while well, there's the formal court record and then there's the explanations given by the judges early for a long time that were written down 
by someone in the audience or that were prepared in writing in advance and then the draft was given to the printer. So I'm not sure anyone interested in comments would be fascinated by that topic. But in any case, I mentioned that's great. No, I think that there's a wide range of people who might be interested in this podcast. And of course, everyone that I've interviewed so far have applied this tragedy of the commons idea in fields that are otherwise completely unrelated to commons governance. So I think that there's a broad range of interests and there might be some folks out there that are, are interested in that as well. Thank you so much for joining me. I had such a great time chatting about this topic with you and learning about your perspectives on this whole body of work. So thanks again. And thank you all for listening. If you'd like to learn more, you can find links to articles and other things we mentioned in the episode at nocommons.ca forward slash podcast. You can also find me and the show on Twitter at at nocommons. If you'd like to suggest a paper to feature, drop me a note on my website contact page. And of course, please consider subscribing to No Commons wherever you get your podcasts.